Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome back for our summer session. Uh, I, I know many of you have been asking lots of questions about uh, COVID-19. And uh, yes, we have John back. Uh, he has some uh, really incredible new information. Uh, always interesting, as you know. And, and we want to make sure we continue to uh, keep you informed uh, as, as much as you need. And, and with some, some of the changing epidemiology, this is going to be really, really important. Uh, for us to uh, stay tuned and, and related to that. So we, we want to come up with a uh, schedule uh, for uh, later in the year, September and past. And so we do have a, uh, a little uh, quiz for you, if you may, or uh, it, it, it's a questionnaire that uh, asking you uh, how often you would like to ask, uh, to have this session, ask the experts to continue this year. And uh, you should be seeing something on your screen very shortly whether you want a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, bi-monthly, quarterly, or as needed. And um, so Steve, uh, tell me if they're seeing it now. So go ahead and click one of those. Uh, again, this would be for September and beyond. Do you want this session to continue as a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, bi-monthly, quarterly, or as needed? And we'll, we'll certainly adapt to that and we can always make changes. Uh, we have received a lot of a lot of uh, great comments from people that you know, this is incredibly useful to them, and I think it is unique in the country in terms of how this is done. And of course, I'm enormously grateful with John and the other speakers that join us every Friday. It takes a lot of time to prepare for these and to make them interesting and useful for uh, for everyone. So I'm waiting for my team to tell me whether uh, we have enough responses. 77%. And so we're going to give you, I'm going to count to 10, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. I think we'll close the poll there and then we'll give you, um, we'll let you know how this uh, turns out. I mean, this is not immediate polling. We'll do triple count of the votes, make sure they're counted correctly, and maybe we'll hire somebody to come and count, right, John? <laughs> so I'm going to ask John to come up and provide us with new information. I'm really looking forward to this, John. Thank you, uh, Juan, and good morning, uh, everyone. It's been uh, almost a month. Uh, I wish I could tell you that I don't need to be here. Uh, unfortunately, uh, COVID is still with us, and so uh, it is what it is, but I have a lot to share with you today, and I look forward to the questions and answers. Um, I think there's a lot for us to talk about as a provider community and as a community of citizens uh, in Connecticut right now. Uh, welcome uh, to those of you who are in Massachusetts and other surrounding states. Um, and I think what I'm going to share with you is relevant to, uh, frankly, all of the states um, right now. So um, Connecticut uh, at the moment is doing very well. You can see um, in January, February, we, we had a horrendous time. We're very much uh, at a low point in number of new cases. Um, this is an outstanding immunization success story. It puzzles me as to why these data are not embraced by other governors to show what could be if people were immunized. So um, again, kudos to the state health department, the governor and the citizens of Connecticut. Uh, this is why we have moved to a more normal place, a safe and more normal place. Now, this is what in April, you can see the uh, test positivity rate was two and a half percent. The whole state uh, had a lot of community spread, and this is where we are in July of 21. Now, the 0.97 positive rate has gone up, so we need to be very careful. The Delta variant is now in the state. I will talk to you about that. But at the moment, you can see community spread, with rare exception, um, is remarkably low in the state, and it is a success story. 
There are very few hospitalized patients right now um, in Connecticut. Uh, this is great news. And as I show you the immunization numbers, you'll see why we've immunized our elderly and high risk and taken care of that. And the death rate is close to zero in Connecticut. So I have good news for you um, for July of uh, 2021 in Connecticut, and actually most of New England and the Northeast are in this condition right now. Now, Connecticut has achieved a remarkable vaccine coverage. Now this is one dose. Uh, and so uh, just be aware, but almost 90% of those 75 and above are immunized. It's essentially 100% of the elderly, which is a tremendous um, achievement. And then uh, 12 and above, about 73% have gotten at least one dose. And so uh, we're, we're in a good place. Uh, what, what my worry is we have a number of people who are not getting their second dose. And as you'll see, one dose of vaccine does not protect against the Delta variant. So uh, it's important that people not get complacent and finish out their immunization schedules. And we're among the best in the United States. You can see this is the adult vaccination rate. Let's go to the fully vaccinated to the right, 18 and above, because remember the vaccine wasn't licensed in, in the middle until 12, so uh, until uh, lower for only one of the vaccines. So you can see Vermont's the best in the country with almost 77% of all adults vaccinated. Uh, that's fully vaccinated. Hawaii, Massachusetts is inched above Connecticut. Shame on Connecticut. Uh, we probably could do a recount uh, and get that straight, Juan. In fact, I'm going to suggest that to the governor that we recount. But this is darn good. Uh, so 73, 74% uh, are fully vaccinated. Maine uh, close uh, there. So this is New, New England leads with Hawaii. New England leads the country in immunization rate. And I, I don't think it's because it's not liberal or conservative. I'll give you my editorial opinion. I think it's because, as ornery as people in New England can be, and we can be. This is really about community. And I, 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 there was a conversation in our town. Uh, we have a very elderly World War II veteran and a number of people said, you know, I'm getting immunized. So I'll use only his first name. So Charlie doesn't get sick. And a lot of people did that. And I think that's New England. It's the idea that we're a community. You go to town meeting, you argue it out. And there is some baseline care for each other that, that, su that supersedes our rugged and ornery individualism in New England. And so I think this is one of the reasons that we are leading the country. It's not because we run around and want the government to tell us what to do. Now, the United States, even though there's a lot of radio static about how we're not where we need to be, it's, it's not bad. 380, uh, I'm sorry, 334 million doses have been administered. Uh, this is not an experimental vaccine. Um, and you can see that fully vaccinated is about 50% of the country. Now, um, we need to do better than that because the problem is, that as you see in New England, it's much beyond that. California, Oregon, better than that. But the southern central part of the country is way under immunized, and that's brought the national average down. So we have a problem geographically. I'm going to show you some of those data. Now, other good news on this is that if you look to the bottom right, let's see if my little pointer works. Yeah, look at that. Here, drag it over there slowly right there. Um, almost 80% of 65 years and above the United States uh, are immunized fully. This is great news. And in my opinion means that I, I, we are having a resurgence with Delta. I don't think we're gonna have the death rate um, that we had previously in our resurgences. And this is because of immunization. So very good news on those who are older in the United States, the immunization rate is quite good. 
Now, worldwide, unfortunately, uh, we are not where we need to be. And you can see um, it really is disparate by wealth of country. Um, it's very unfortunate. India remains under immunized. The continent of Africa, uh, pieces of Europe still. Um, and then you'll see South America. And the problem with Brazil is a lot of the vaccine it looks good on the map, but a lot of the vaccine uh, was from China. And, and it's not clear that vaccine is as effective as the vaccines being used uh, in terms of the mRNA, JNJ, or AstraZeneca. So uh, we have a problem worldwide. And what's the issue, right? Who cares? We're well immunized or will be. It makes a big difference because you'll have more variants. Every person who's infected cranks out billions of variants. They're going to be mutations. And if we don't get the world under control, we're going to have another variant introduced into the United States to which the vaccines will not be effective. So. We're going to need to look as a world uh, of how we solve this problem and get people immunized, even in the poorer countries, as soon as possible. Unfortunately, in the United States, overall, we're entering another resurgence. Um, it's quite clear we up to 20,000 or more. I think it was 23,000 yesterday, new cases a day. Uh, and you can see the arrow, it's starting to creep up. Um, and, you know, this is a warning sign because most of this is Delta variant. I'm going to show you those data. And this is a warning sign for the United States to get our act together, or we're not going to be back to normal the way we would like. To me, it's all mathematics. And I've told you that before. It's not politics. Delta variant has a better R value, right? It infects more people. Virulence, we're not sure about. So if you're unimmunized, the Delta variant is going to burn through that population and infect a lot of people. And unfortunately, it seems like since they're younger now and everyone said the young people don't don't get that sick, that's actually not true. If you look at the hospitalizations in Arkansas and places like that now, there are a lot of younger people getting very sick. So uh, this is where it's all mathematics. It's not politics. And, and unfortunately, we don't seem to have grasped that yet uh, as a country. And we're having a resurgence. You see the resurgence at this time, however, is extremely geographically isolated. You'll see that it's um, focused right now in Missouri and in that area in Central South. Florida is having a problem, even though um, the state government is in denial about that. Florida is having a, a significant COVID problem. And you'll see pockets of it uh, in the West and, and Upper West where uh, there's under immunization. And if you look at this, 99% um, of those being hospitalized in those states are unimmunized. I want to repeat that. And this is where if there are people out in your community or in your hospital or in your office who are not immunized yet, 99% of those being hospitalized and dying are unimmunized in the United States currently. So um, the vaccines work. We have under immunized geographic pockets where there's a resurgence occurring. And unfortunately, it's mostly Delta variant. And I'm going to show you those data. Now, this is an out-of-date CDC slide. I don't know why they don't update this. It's from June. It's still what they have on the website. And at that time in June, the Delta variant was 30% of all new isolates being, being tested. That's twice that now. It's now 60%. And that's in four weeks. So in another four weeks, the Delta variant will be the most the, the dominant uh, variant circulating. You still have the UK B117. Uh, is still there, but the Delta variants that orange, uh, 16, 17.2, it is going to be very shortly, if it's not already, the dominant circulating strain in the United States. And if you look at areas of resurgence, the seven is, includes the Missouri area, 
The Delta variant is dark orange. It's the dominant strain in the resurgence areas. So unimmunized areas, Delta variant is burning through and filling up the hospitals. And in fact, on the NPR this morning coming in, um, uh, they interviewed the state health department uh, director of Arkansas. And it's an underimmunized population. She's very worried. The hospitals are, fill, are filled. And uh, there are a lot of young people um, in the hospitals now sick with COVID. And, and she was claiming, you know, talking about how in some of the rural areas, unless somebody actually gets sick, they fundamentally are, are not understanding the seriousness uh, of this problem. And uh, the media is feeding that. And I'm going to show you, show, show you some of those data as well. So Delta variant is dominant in the resurgence areas. Now, if you look in the Northeast, you'll see New England so far, it's a small slice of the pie, dark orange. But New York, not so small. And so, you know, what does that tell you? That tells you that Delta will be dominant in this area shortly. And certainly in my town in Massachusetts, because half the plates are New York plates right now. So I will tell you that we will have Delta variant New England as the dominant strain shortly. The good news for us is we have a remarkably well immunized population. And if you do get Delta variant and you're immunized, you tend to be much less sick and do not get hospitalized. And, and mortality extremely rare if you're immunized and get Delta variant. So that's the good news for us. Now I'm gonna show you Missouri. It's a case study of resurgence in an undervaccinated population. Uh, you can see they were cooking along. They never actually got it under control the way Connecticut and Vermont others have. So it's always been cooking along. But you'll see there's a 79% increase in new cases um, and 42% increase in those who are hospitalized and the death rate's shooting up from zero to now 13 and, and it's rapidly increasing. So, you know, um, this is not politics. This is only mathematics of an enhanced R value mutant and an under immunized population. Um, this should be embraced by every governor in the country and they should understand the faster they get their population immunized, the less of their constituents will get sick and die. I, I just can't say it any clearer than that. Um, and unfortunately, uh, we do not appear to be in that political situation. Now, if you look at Missouri immunizations, um, you have 49% of those 18 and up are fully vaccinated. Remember, it's 20% more than that or more in New England. Um, they've not done as badly in the elderly, which is good. So about three quarters of the elderly in Missouri are immunized, which is good and will probably spare them the severe death rates that we saw in the other resurgences. So there's some silver lining in that the old people in Missouri, many of them did get fully immunized. Now let's talk about um, mix and match. So a lot of the questions I've had are, and are coming up, so I got J&J, &J, you know, do, if I get a booster, which one am I gonna get? And does mix and match the adenovirus vaccines work with the mRNA vaccine? So it's a great study from Oxford and the UK. They actually did a single blind randomized trial comparing mixing and matching these priming and boost things. So, it's a great study. And what they found is really good. They found that it doesn't show up quite as well as I would like. But let's look at the bar graph. The, uh, the lines don't look as good. You'll see blue is uh, two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. And uh, it's very good, you'll see up there. But you'll also see that mixing and matching the adenovirus followed by the mRNA vaccine or the, um, the uh, mRNA vaccine followed by a AstraZeneca it's pretty good. Those are the three up there. And actually, you'll see that they are superior to AstraZeneca two doses alone. So 
if you mix and match, it looks like you're getting as good titers as two doses of the Pfizer and probably better than two doses of the adenovirus vaccine, which is the standard regimen in England for AstraZeneca. So I think this is a good hint for us moving forward and it may allow us much more flexibility if we do move to a booster uh, um, state and, and later in the year uh, to mix and match the vaccine. So I think this is very good news. Um, Novavax, this is the NVX vaccine. We're getting more and more data. This one's gonna be licensed soon. And you'll see on the right, this is efficacy, uh, 80s, 90s, um, quite good. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it for variants, unfortunately not tested against the Delta variant, but it's pretty darn good against B117. It gave you about 86% protection down there. So the Nova vaccine looks pretty darn good. Uh, and um, this is a recombinant protein vaccine, standard technology, and may be more acceptable to some people. And these are Kaplan-Meier plots showing efficacy against symptomatic COVID. And you'll see at uh, the top is without the vaccine and the bottom is with the vaccine. And it's highly effective in preventing symptomatic COVID infection. So another vaccine will be in our armamentarium soon. This was the New England Journal very recently. Now, um, this unfortunately didn't show up well, so I'll read it to you. The SARS uh, mRNA vaccines induce persistent human germinal center responses. So this is a great study. I'm not sure I would have volunteered for it, but they got people who were immunized and they actually did lymph node biopsies on them and they agreed to do this. I, I apologize and that didn't come out so well, but it says needle aspirates of lymph nodes of 14 Pfizer immunated volunteers were, were used. They went to the germinal centers and looked at the B cells in a molecular way. And they found that three months um, they were after immunization, they were spike protein specific B cells. It's a, that's a memory response. Those B cells are, are memory. And, um, and so you know, within three, four, five months out, you've got a lot of memory for spike protein. So if you're challenged, you're going to make antibodies very quickly and do well. Now, the problem is the media picked up on this paper and, and basically said, this shows the vaccines yield immunity for a really long time and you won't need boosters. Well, that's probably not true, but this is a very good paper showing that for many months um, after Pfizer immunization, you've got memory B cells. So that's good news. Um, how do we treat immunocompromised? Another great study, um, this was in the New England Journal a couple of weeks ago. What they did is they had transplant, solid organ transplant patients, and they found that uh, with one dose of vaccine, um, they did not make a very good antibody response. Two doses was a little bit better, and that's here on the right, that's two doses. But if you gave them a third dose booster, the solid organ transplant patients made a lot of neutralizing antibodies. This is one month after the third dose. So not yet, but I'll bet you in the near future for solid organ transplants, it's gonna be recommended that we give three doses of the mRNA vaccine, and then they will be highly protected. This is great news for our large immunocompromised population. And I look forward to more studies coming out, looking at cancer patients and others and trying to figure out what regimen of vaccines will yield good protection for them. Because I think these vaccines will do it. As you can see, three doses in solid organ transplant. And these are on T-cell immunosuppressive drugs, these patients. Made very good antibody titers. So good news for our immunocompromised population. Now, um, this is very interesting. This came out of the Israeli Ministry of Health um, this is sobering in that they observe, they have Delta virus burning through Israel right now. 
and they observed a decline in the mRNA vaccine effectiveness in preventing symptomatic infection down to about 64%. So from a 90% vaccine with Delta, it goes down to 64 for having any symptoms with a COVID infection. So they were getting breakthrough infections. However, if you look at the last sentence here, they found that for keeping you out of the hospital and basically not getting very sick, it's 93% protective. So the point here is if Delta sweeps through and you are immunized, you might get a cold, but you're not gonna end up in the hospital. If you're unimmunized, you're gonna end up in the hospital. So I think, again, for those people on the fence about immunization, these data are critical because if you're going to be unimmunized and Delta sweeps through, it's highly likely you will get sick. Uh, if you're immunized, you might get a cold and have some symptoms, but you're not gonna be admitted to the hospital. So I think these are very important data in real time uh, from a country as in May where Delta variant was sweeping through um, in, in Israel. Now, this is, these data have been contested and some people feel it's not as bad as 64% but I think it's a good warning sign for us to take seriously. Now, um, the, in response to these data, the Ministry of Health in Israel is starting to offer boosters, but only to high risk. Remember I showed you those solid organ transplant patients, third dose really helps. So what they're doing is they're giving third dose to adults with an impaired immune system, cancer patients, transplant patients, to boost them based on those kind of data that I showed you. They're not giving boosters to everyone, just to uh, high risk immunocompromised to try to get them protected against the Delta variant. So again, I do think we may move to that in this country, not yet. Now, another great study, this is from Scotland. Again, trying to understand what's the Delta variant gonna do here. Let's look at what happened in other countries very recently, kind of real time. So in Scotland, the, the Delta variant was swept through recently and what they found, uh, this is a, a letter from uh, a big health system in Scotland, June 26th. Uh, they found that the Delta variant was infecting younger people. It was twice as likely if you got it to be hospitalized compared to if you got a non-Delta variant infection. The Pfizer protection after two doses was 92% for non-Delta and 79% for Delta. So much better than what they saw in Israel. 80% is pretty good. And for AstraZeneca, it's not quite as good for Delta. Um, they found 60% protection with the Delta variant with two doses of AstraZeneca. And they also found interestingly that the best protection was 28 days or more after the second dose because they had breakthrough infections a couple of weeks after your second dose of the uh, vaccine. So a month out was actually better. So these are very good data in real time from a country I think similar to the United States showing Good protection by the mRNA vaccines, but not quite as good for Delta. So some caution is in, is in uh, what we need to be doing. Now, what about all this antibodies? Do the antibodies work against the Delta variant? And, and you know, what are we gonna do? And so these, these data I think are pretty good. Um, and this just came out in Nature a week ago. What they found was one dose of the mRNA vaccines does not protect against the Delta variant. Pretty solid data. So if you're out there somewhere and you've had one dose of Pfizer, Moderna, and you're waffling, you're not protected. Get your second dose. Two doses of Pfizer or AstraZeneca elicited neutralizing antibodies against the Delta variant that were presumed protective, but lower than what you saw for regular variants. And some of the monoclonals, by the way, don't bind at all to the Delta variant. 
uh, or the South African variant, which is the beta. So the monoclonals are not quite as good as, uh, are not gonna be quite as good against these variants. So let me show you some of that. Here you can see, this is really also important. Again, as people say, well, I got infected, I'm protected for life. You know, I, I think that's what um, that ophthalmologist who's in Congress said, which is incorrect. Let me show you those data. So you can see on the left, this 26 people with nat natural infection and these are the neutralizing antibodies against the various variants 12 months out. And you can see if you had natural infection against uh, the non-variants, you are not protected against the South African or Delta strain. You don't have any antibodies. So, you know, if you had, if you were infected six months ago with some other variant, you are not protected against the new one. Get immunized, all right? And I think these data are as good as you're gonna get showing that. Vaccines are better. Here are the vaccines, two doses of the vaccines for the various variants. And interestingly, although there's a fall off for, actually the South African strain has a bigger fall off than the, this is the Delta variant. Um, it's still a lot of antibody made. So although there's a decrease from the alpha variant, if, if you, uh, you're protected very well against that, you are still protected against the South African and Delta variant 12 months after two doses, we think. So um, these are, again, very good. And this is one of the reasons the CDC is saying, you know, we're not ready for boosters yet. Just take a deep breath because the data are showing months out, things are still pretty good. So that's why we'll see, this may change, but we'll see these are data from France. And oh, um, and, and uh, this also showed Pfizer that two doses of the vaccines uh, was quite good. This is from the same paper and that's over here. And again, you know, you're still getting, this delta is the right, you're still getting very good neutralizing tires. And by the way, the South African, not quite as good, but that doesn't seem to be as contagious as the Delta variant. The Delta variant is outcompeting it. So that's probably good news in a sense, because the South African variant is more resistant to neutralizing antibodies. The monoclonals, many of them don't work against the Delta variant. And here's one, uh, this particular monoclonal is basically, these, this is ineffective against Delta variant. So we have to be very careful uh, with monoclonal prophylaxis now, and we're going to need to pick out, you know, you take this slide and pick out the monoclonal that does have activity against Delta variant, which is uh, in Devimab uh, and maybe uh, Tesimab. So um, this is going to be something we'll have to be very careful about if we're thinking of prophylaxing an immunosuppressed person with monoclonals. Myocarditis, these are, I think, great data. Um, only the military can get data like this because it's not really optional, right? You're there, you know, you're gonna get followed up because uh, your commanding officers show up in the clinic. So these are um, thousands of military members who received uh, mRNA vaccines and then following myocarditis. And they have expected incidents of myocarditis because, you know, they follow all these kids who are, who are coming for other immunizations. So they know that, um, they expect around two to 52 cases of myocarditis out of 2.8 million recruits. And he, they, they actually have a million who got second doses of the mRNA vaccines, and they expected about 20 cases, one to 20 cases of myocarditis. They got 20 cases up the upper limits of what they expected. However, when that's all military. Um, when they separated out, these are mostly young men and women. These might include retired mostly young men and women, they find that in fact, the observed case, which be zero to 10, zero to eight, is actually what was observed as higher. So they're getting about 19 cases per 544,000 administered doses, still a minuscule number, but slightly greater than what was expected. 
So I think I feel very comfortable talking to parents and, and to uh, community members and providers saying, look, there is a slight increase, particularly in young, who are immunized after the second dose of myocarditis that exceeds what was expected by X number of cases, say nine cases per half million. Those are the data. It's not what you'd expect, it's a little bit bigger. So I think people need to be informed on that. Uh, most of these people, I think all of them recovered, as I recall, and um, most of them were not very sick, but these are very good data. Probably, I think, I, in my opinion, probably the best we're gonna get because the military can follow these people so closely. Now, um, clinical risk groups, you know, these vaccines work in, the, in, these, in, the, in high risk people with diabetes and are 80 years old and all this stuff. And the answer is, yes, we know. Well, this study focused only on those people and they found that uh, with one dose, the overall vaccine effectiveness against symptomatic disease was 60%, but uh, went up to 80% with AstraZeneca. This came from the UK and it's actually the government of the UK website. In high-risk people, 65 and over, Pfizer protected 89%, 90%. Very good data for elderly. And for immunosuppressed, um, after a second dose of the mRNA vaccines, it was 74% protection. Quite good. So after one dose, it was only 4% protection. So you can see that's one of the reasons, in my view, I think we're probably going to be giving the booster first to the immunosuppressed patients. Prolonged long haulers. Great data. I find this very disturbing data. In this study, they just followed people at COVID and checked their heart rate with their Fitbit, their Apple Watch or their Fitbit. And they found something very disturbing. And if you look on the right, a lot of these people had elevated heart rate from their baseline that never went down for months. So they had tachycardia post COVID. Not all of them were very sick post COVID for months. And in some of them, it hasn't gone down yet to the, to the uh, length of the study. So this is where I start getting very worried that if we have millions of people infected, they don't get very sick, maybe, maybe that's not entirely true. Uh, why would you have an elevated heart rate for months after having your COVID infection? So I don't have an answer. They're obviously looking at this. And I, I think these were data that I found disturbing and reinforce my suggestion to people that they get immunized because this, this natural infection is not good for you. Why would your heart be beating uh, at, at uh, rates of five, six, seven beats per minute more than your baseline for many months after infection? Well, you dinged those cells somehow in the conduction system and elsewhere. So I think very important data to share with um, our providers and families. Um, Janus kinase inhibitors, immunosuppressives, this is a very good paper, lower the death rate. If we are gonna have people admitted to the ICU again, uh, in this study you can see uh, with the Janus kinase inhibitor, there was significantly lower death rate and better recovery. So um, we, do, we are learning better about which of our interventions will help very sick people with COVID. So we're getting better at understanding that, what's gonna work and what's not gonna work. All right, let's get to uh, the epidemic, pandemic, um, in my view, this pandemic is not political. I've shown you the data. This is about mathematics. It's about the vaccine that works. It's about people in the ICU and how many will die. And it's about if you don't die, are you gonna be sick for the rest of your life with some strange post-vaccine problem, a post-COVID problem? The vaccines 
have been given to millions and millions of people without long-term. They don't raise your heart rate. They don't do those things. So um, the anti-vaccine rhetoric, this is from a member of Congress uh, who said Biden is pushing a vaccine that is not FDA approved and it shows COVID as political tool used to control people. People have a choice. They don't need your medical brown shirts showing up at their door ordering vaccinations. You can't force people to be part of the human experiment. Now these exact words, I think Juan and I recently saw on a town hall of several people who are very concerned about getting vaccinated. Words count because people who are maybe not as sophisticated on science as, as others read this from what they believe is a trusted leader and believe it. So what's a brown shirt? Um, I think it's worth defining what that is because the brown shirts were in Nazi Germany at, before Hitler was in power, they were paramilitary members who violently assisted his rise to power. They would beat up people. They would do uh, anti-education uh, anti kind of things. They would beat up professors, things like that. So we as public health people who are urging, all of you in the vaccine clinics, um, this is being equated by a politician is that you are associated with a Nazi Germany kind of behavior. I have great trouble with that. I think we need to call this out. It is not time to be quiet anymore. People who are helping other people in clinics to get immunized and be safe are doing noble work. And this is de deliberately manipulative um, behavior. Uh, and I think something that we absolutely are gonna need to call it. I'm sorry, um, it's not politics. It's good public health and making sure our public health workers continue to be respected and are able to deliver the vaccine to people who need it. Not mandatory if you want it, though. Now, here's a great one. This is a Newsmax host who has actually millions of followers. Vaccines are against nature because some diseases just wipe some people out. So he says, um, uh, his name's Rob Schmidt, uh, that some diseases are just supposed to wipe out a certain amount of people, and that's the natural way. Okay, great. So with that thought process, let's stop immunizing children. And let's, some of them will end up in cemeteries. It is what it is. I showed you the pictures a few months ago or a month ago of a, a colonial cemetery just full of children who probably had vaccine preventable diseases. So this thought process takes you down that rabbit hole that, hey, it's natural to get pertussis and die. What's the big deal? I think to me, this is craziness. Uh, I don't want children to die. I don't want the cemeteries filled with children. And I don't want the cemeteries filled with adults who could be immunized and prevent against infection. So this is um, a steady stream of news, as it were, coming out to many people who become confused and they don't know who to believe. Uh, obviously, this drives his ratings and he's making money doing this. That's what it's all about. It's driving ratings. Now, here's a more insidious um, uh, uh, disinformation, and I want to show you what's happening. Uh, and this is not politics. This is about public health. And uh, you guys don't know my politics. Conservative, liberal, this is not about that. This is about deliberate disinformation to drive ratings and confuse people. So in this article, Steve Cortez says, in liberal states, we got to fight. Even in liberal states, parents need to fight over masks and vaccines. And you shouldn't be doing this. So regarding masking, this is what he says, even doctors who support masking concede the lack of supporting data. Researchers led by Dr. Angela Rasmussen at Columbia University observed in the New England Journal of Medicine 
that there's insufficient evidence to support the claim that mass reduced the infectious dose of SARS and the severity of COVID-19. That's what he says. So if I read that, and I didn't happen to be smart enough to pull the New England article, which is what I did, oh, masks don't work. I told you, you know, don't make me wear a mask in an airplane. Oh my God, you know, why are you, the government's trying to control me. This is deliberate disinformation I'm gonna show you. This is the actual paper. This is what Dr. Rasmussen actually said. She said that masks greatly reduce transmission of the disease, but are not a substitute for vaccination because you take them off, right? You don't wear them 24 seven. So what she really said is that masks are used primarily to reduce transmission. You can read it, but if you take it off, you're not gonna reduce the dose of infectious particles and you're still gonna get sick with COVID. And what she was saying here the suggestion that masks offer an alternative vaccination is not correct. You must get vaccinated. So taken out of that article, this, this, this pundit is twisting it to show that masking is not effective, which is not the point of the article, and in fact, deliberate disinformation. Uh, so I think uh, we need to be very aware of this. Uh, I find this uh, unbelievable because you do this and somebody's gonna take off their mask and get sick, they're unimmunized, maybe end up in the ICU and die. So this is deliberate, you can see it's deliberate to, to drive some, some goal of, of uh, I, I don't know, I guess more readership, more advertising, I don't know what. Uh, what's the end game of something like this? More people sick? Uh, so again, very disturbing, but everyone needs to be aware this is happening. So when you have someone come at you with all this stuff, we need to listen and try to guide them back to facts because this is the kind of diet that much of the country's being fed right now. Um, and I showed you that. So pull that New England Journal letter, you'll go, oh my God, that's not what she said. The good, the bad, the ugly. And I would love to get away from this. Can we stop doing the good, the bad, the ugly? Not yet. The USA has fully immunized about 60% of the adult population and 80% of the elderly. You know, it's not bad. We have geographic outliers that have outbreaks right now, Connecticut, and New England, outstanding immunization rates and low new cases and hospitalizations and deaths, very low numbers. We're in a good place right now. We don't wanna blow that. The Southeastern US, parts of the West, significantly under immunized. There are preventable increases in COVID-19 infections occurring, preventable. Remember back in, back in the early winter, the vaccines were just coming out. We didn't have those tools to knock this down. Now we have them and we're not using it. And you have an entire continent of Africa crying out for vaccines, and we're not using them here. The Delta variant is spreading all over the United States. It's the dominant variant in the states with outbreaks. New surges due to this variant in under-immunized states are going to occur and get worse. It, it, you can just watch what happened in Scotland, watch what happened in the other countries. Israel, despite the facts and science showing safety and remarkable protection by these vaccines, and the outbreaks in under-vaccinated states, you continue to have media pundits and political leaders aggressively pursue anti-public health and anti-vaccine rhetoric, disinformation, and policies. Uh, it is what it is. This is not a political statement. This is a factual statement of how we could conquer this pandemic if that would stop. So I'm going to end here. I know we have lots of questions today, uh, and we should have good time to answer them. Thank you. Thank you, uh, John. As always, uh, great scientific information and, and uh, great commentary related to it. I really appreciate it. 
We do have a lot of questions, so thank you everyone for joining. Um, some of you are listed as, as CME, uh, so if you want to, if you if you want your name recognized, just put it on the chat there so we know who you are. Uh, from Julie Schiff, please uh, in outpatient. Yeah, sorry. Should we should we be mandating COVID vaccines for all employees in outpatient offices, clinical staff, non-clinical staff? Well, I can say that Connecticut Hospital Association has um, come out saying that vaccines should be mandated in the hospitals in the state. Many hospitals are moving forward uh, with that. Connecticut Children's is one of them, where we will be uh, asking all employees to be immunized by October 7th. Uh, I think that's practice by practice. You have to make that uh, decision uh, as an employer. In my opinion, this is just an opinion, I think if you're going to face patients and particularly unimmunized children, remember our children are not immunized yet, uh, I would want the risk that I would infect an unimmunized child to be as close to zero as possible, and that means I need to be immunized. So in my opinion, I think people who are facing patients, particularly unimmunized patients, should be immunized. Yeah, and just to clarify, we Connecticut Children's uh, has made uh, va vaccination when against COVID-19 a condition of employment as of October 7th. So if you're employed by Connecticut Children's, either through Connecticut Children's Specialty Group or the, or, or the medical center, uh, you will have to have uh, a vaccine uh, to remain uh, front and center. Um, and even if you're not front and center, you still have to be vaccinated. And we made that decision in concert with many other children's hospitals, in concert with the Infectious Disease Society of America, in concert with multiple organizations, and essentially every hospital here in Connecticut that has done that. Hartford Healthcare just switched uh, their policy or started their policy a couple of days ago for all their employees. Uh, and, I, and I realize it's complex, but uh, that's the way we're moving forward, and we can help you with those messaging, with the messaging. Um, also from Julie, what happened to Novavax? Uh, we were hoping for more, more options. And have you heard anything, John, about the... Uh... I showed you that slide. So Novavax uh, has very good efficacy data. Uh, I showed you that. It's, uh, it's well in the 80s, 90% protection. The younger population. Uh, I can't answer that. It hasn't even been approved yet for adults. I know the Novavax is in front of the FDA to get conditional approval. So um, when that happens, um, and I know they're already doing some clinical studies in children, I'm optimistic Novavax could be a great choice. But unfortunately, uh, Julia, I think it's still a few months away. Yeah, from John Pittigoff related to the mandate, uh, there's a lot of misinterpretation of the legal authority of the emergency use authorization. Given the gray, gray area of mandating, how does the private employer navigate in the office for those employees who will not be vaccinated? You know, it's, it's a great question. I, I, first off, I would say the FDA will fully license these vaccines shortly. I would say by September 1st. That's, that's what's on the, the grind right now. So I think that's going to solve that problem for you at some point. All I can say is, in my opinion, if you're going to face patients, it's not about me. It's about my patient. And how do I ensure the safety and care of my patients first? Uh, and so I think every provider and every person who's facing patients needs to make the correct decision. Now, I don't want to harm my patients and I will get immunized. Uh, I think that's the best you can do uh, for your private employer. Um, and so it does become a gray area. It's no different for Connecticut Children's or any of the hospitals across the state that will be asking um, our employees to be immunized by October 7th. The other alternative, too, is if you choose to not get immunized, you'll be wearing a mask at every interaction in the office at all times, and you will not be eating in public with anybody. You'll have to eat privately 
Uh, and uh, some organizations of those who choose to get unimmunized are testing them weekly. Maybe that's another alternative for you. If they choose to be unimmunized, they're gonna get COVID tested every week to make sure they're negative. So I think you have some backup plans you could do, but ultimately, again, I, this is where I, I find it challenging uh, with some of the providers who are, who are not getting immunized. This is really not about us, it's about our patients. <clears throat> and I've also showed you robust data that getting this disease is worse than anything we've seen with the immunization. So uh, I think that is just the where you have to land with them. Uh, John, a question about uh, what do we know about the ability of vaccinated people to transmit SARS-CoV, all variants, to their unvaccinated young children? You know, I, I don't know if there's been a specific study looking at that. I will say we know that if you are vaccinated, you are much, 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 much less likely to transmit COVID because you're not going to have symptomatic COVID uh, to other people than unimmunized. So it's very, very good. It reduces the likelihood of transmission. The last I saw was a 70% reduction. I think with the Delta variant, if we start having some breakthrough infections among immunized, that could be less, uh, less effective. But right now, it's pretty darn good. So I would be pretty comfortable that if you're immunized, you're highly unlikely to transmit COVID to others or to your children. Interesting comment from Andreas is of interest as we have seen in past with other countries in other parts of our country, those who are hit at a time of, at, at, at a time are different from us. Uh, so she's talking about Missouri that did not have the, you know, the ghastly surge that we had last year here in the Northeast. Uh, she notes that Missouri graphs show nearly no COVID before their current surge. And, and so perhaps there's an explanation of why people didn't get vaccinated. Your comment. I, I think um, this is what the Arkansas Health Department person said today as well. And I think it's probably true in Missouri. There are a lot of isolated rural areas in Missouri that didn't get hammered the first round. They were isolated. They were very rural. And that's where the under immunization is occurring. And so now it's sweeping through them and you're starting to see increases in those communities. So that, that's my explanation uh, for it. Yeah, and of course, he, here's the nefarious part of people that, in, in fact, Bill Zemsky sent me a, um, a link to a place that actually sells fake COVID vaccination cards, right? So the, uh, here's another comment. So my 12 year old daughter told me that her adult camp counselor was talking to the kids about how to forge the COVID vaccination card and some of the other kids indicated their family has fake immunization cards. Have you heard anything about that? I have. No, um, I did because <laughs> there's just a woman in California who was arrested for selling fake immunization cards and a pill that she claimed uh, was in the news this morning. A pill she claimed made you resistant to COVID, which was complete bogus. So, you know, look, why do I get phone calls saying my social security number has been compromised? Please call India. I mean, you know, you call and you get somebody in India who's trying to take your money. This is worldwide. You know, the scams are everywhere. And I think I'm not surprised. Uh, and we'll probably have to have some enhanced CDC card at some point because people will fake them. It's sort of a, you know, what can I say? It's human nature. So I, I take that less seriously because there's just so many scams out there right now. It's just another in the list of the phone calls I get every day trying to get me to, uh, you know, give them my secret information. So that's, that's how I approach it. I'm saddened. Uh, that people would move to that, um, but it is what it is. Yeah, well, you can get a lot of things from the black market, social security, driver's license, passports, anything you want. I mean, these cards are easier to fake, but don't do it. Um, all right, well, there'll be new iterations of the mRNA vaccine that include transcriptions against Delta, Lambda, et cetera. Why should vaccines give longer, and that's the first question, then, and why should vaccines give longer protection than contracting the disease? So 
the first question, the answer is, I know Pfizer has proposed to the FDA that their booster would cover Delta and a couple of other variants. So the answer is yes, they have it. And I think what they're asking the FDA is much like flu, not to have them do a whole clinical trial again, just to use that as the booster like you do with flu shots. So I know that's being debated with the FDA. So I think the answer is yes, the boosters would cover uh, the new variants. I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question, Juan? Um, oh boy, I think I took it down. Um, we'll go to the next one. We'll come back to okay, that. I, I apologize. Yeah, the, uh, from uh, Dr. Grossi, uh, thoughts regarding vaccine breakthrough cases. Is the incidence expected or do you feel that Delta variant could be contributing? I think that um, at least if you look at the Israeli and probably Scottish data, uh, the Delta variant, as, because you have lower neutralizing titers, and perhaps as you're farther out from immunization, some people's titers fall below the protection level to con contract symptomatic disease. So the answer is you saw the neutralizing titers after immunization are lower for Delta. They're still pretty good. And over many months, they probably fall off. So the answer is I think that's why we're getting breakthrough with Delta. And, and um, the previous question was why is the vaccine better than natural longer infection. protection yeah that's, that's a great question and i don't know the answer to that i would say probably in my mind you know when you're exposed to the whole virus the spike protein is one among many antigens in there and, and it's not the single thing you're responding to when you get the mrna vaccine the spike protein is the single antigen being presented to you your immune system so your immune response against the spike protein is probably more robust I think um, that appears to be very protective. That, so I think that's probably, in my immunologic understanding, why that might be. I agree with you. I think this is not the first time that a, that a single antigen gives some much higher antibody test uh, or antibody type for, the, for a duration of a year or so. And, and, and we, we saw this with, uh, with a, our own study that's going to be published uh, in, in the IBD journal, the, the, the senior author is Jeff Himes where we, we vaccinated kids with inflammatory bowel disease who are in biologicals there uh, and, and compare that to their, their cohort of, of, uh, of kids with IBD who had COVID-19, the response to the vaccine is, is so much better. And those who had COVID-19 and then got re-immunized had a really, really high response. And so vaccination is a, is a very good way of generating high titers of antibodies to the specific spike protein. And that's, that's what that happens. I think those are great points. And I would also use, remember the graph where I showed you after a year, a lot of those people have been previously infected with COVID were non-immune to Delta. So those of them out there saying, I had COVID last year, I'm good. That's not correct. They need to be immunized. All right. The next question. Um, can you comment on the recent studies showing Ivermectin helpful in treatment and prophylaxis. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've looked at most of those studies and, and most of them are, some of them are randomized placebo control, showing no effect of Ivermectin. So I, I don't use it and the data don't support its use. Uh, there's some anecdotal papers, but the, the randomized placebo controlled showed no positive effect. Uh, from Ken Spiegelman, and I haven't seen this, I haven't heard this statement, but he says that Dr. Peter Hotez recently commented on news that up to 30% of children infected will suffer from long COVID. Please comment. Has that been your experience? Well, 30%, that seems very high. That seems high. That's, That's not, not our experience. No. We are seeing some. Yeah, and in fact, uh, we will be opening a clinic specifically looking at long haul children and adolescents and teenagers, but um, it's much lower than that in our experience. I'd say single-digit percents. 
Yeah, that that's a that's a high number in my opinion because we've had but, about four million kids in the U.S. that have been infected, and I don't think thirty percent of them have developed long haul. Now, but here's the interesting thing, and I think we need to start doing this. Remember, I showed you that Fitbit study or the Apple Watch study where they just watch COVID patients. We need to do that for kids and see if their heart rates and other physiologic parameters are staying abnormally elevated post-COVID. We don't know the answer to that, but in terms of clinical long hauler, it's very small percent, but it's significant because we have to open a clinic for it here, but it's not 30%. Interesting in uh, comment from Veronica Ron Priola in, in, in Danbury. He says it was announced in the news yesterday that the, the infectivity rate, it must, it must be that the positivity rate in Danbury was 8% on July 14th. I didn't know that. I know the state positivity rate has gone up, but it's still below one and two percent. But it is going up, and again, I, it's most likely Delta variant uh, sweeping through New England now. Yeah, and one of the big problems we have in Connecticut is in the in the cities: Hartford, New Haven, Danbury, Bridgeport, uh, you know, Waterbury. The the, um, the 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 immunization is less than forty percent in some population, in some groups. And that's, and that's that, that's one Juan, once mentioning that our immunization rate in some of our big cities is very low. And I think that's a incredibly important point. We have work to do still. I don't want people to look at the Connecticut immunization rates. Oh, we're done. We have lots of work to do. And in the cities, but also the eastern part of the state has a couple of townships that are way under immunized. So we have some work to do in Connecticut and New England. Massachusetts has the same problem in a couple of counties. Yeah, John, aligned with your comment, David Kroll puts in the website about the Surgeon General's uh, uh, warning about health misinformation. So the, the the link is there for all of you. He did go, you know, he is making a point just like you are about misinformation. I, I think and one of the reasons I throw that out there for all of us is that this is what a good, a good significant piece of our population is hearing. And so we need to approach that with compassion and facts. Even if even after I pull the New England Journal paper out and show somebody that's just not true. Uh, it's really important that we do that because I want everyone needs to understand what people are being fed. Large millions of people in this country are being fed that misinformation. The question about what is the truth about the 79 COVID deaths in Massachusetts to fully vax patients makes no sense with the data. I'm not aware of those data. I'll have to look into it for our next talk. Um, these are deaths from uh, individuals who are immunized but then later got COVID. Yes. Yeah. So I can say that. Um, I think a month ago, I showed you the data we had to date about those who were immunized and who actually, if you got infected, uh, passed away. And it was very distinctly a very elderly uh, age group with high risk who got a breakthrough infection and didn't do well, but it was a very small number. And so I can go back and look at those data and update them for the next talk. Again, I'm not aware of the Connecticut data on that. I would reiterate um, nationally right now, those who are in the ICUs and who are, you know, sadly passing away, 99% are unimmunized. So that, that should give you the numbers will be very small. It's not 100%. Uh, that means 1% of them are immunized. Very, very small numbers, though. It's an interesting question. We have a lot of kids in Connecticut gearing up to show animals at country fairs. The kids will often sleep uh, over in the barns or tents while their animals are there. Should we be limiting the number of kids who can stay over, requiring distancing or even masks? Many of the kids are under 12 and can't yet get vaccinated. You know, um, I don't know the answer to that. I think um, as we've learned over this pandemic, uh, there's a limited number of animals who can get infected. You know, minks, weasels, cats, tigers, uh, you know, in the zoo, things like that. Um, 
in my view, I think we should nurture and encourage those fairs that are very valuable for kids, but we should use the same common health, public health measures that we're using in any other crowded setting. Physical distance, wear a mask if you're indoors, there's a lot of other people and you don't know their immunization status. So I would use the same common sense CDC suggestions that we're using for any other indoor activity. But I would, you know, again, those fairs are, are really critical kids and we used to enjoy them in, in um, several states that we lived in. So I don't think there's any reason not to do them, but use common sense public health recommendations. We have uh, time for two more questions. Um, can you advise for parents with kids who are, who are under 12 years of age? Can, uh, can you comment on state of research and vaccination in this age group? And uh, the, the comment is you're amazing, John. <laughs> uh, you're very kind. You guys are amazing. Uh, this community um, is amazing. I look at how, how this community has handled this pandemic. Uh, and I, again, I, I'm blessed to have been able to work here and live in New England during this pandemic. Um, I think, again, common sense. So if you're immunized, you're unlikely to give your child um, disease in the household. So you're, you're good. If your child's going to school, you know, there's opportunity to get infected. And then it's the common sense um, sort of things, physical distancing, um, what the school's doing in terms of masking or not masking. I think you have to manage that. If you're traveling and, or you're going to the mall, in my view, at this point, knowing where Delta virus is, I would mask up if I'm going into crowded situations indoors now. I think it, you know, I, I would up my game a little bit. And that means you put a mask on your kid if they're you know, gonna be at the mall with a bunch of other kids. I think it's common sense, watch the community spread. It's very low still in Connecticut, but as we heard from somebody in the audience, it's creeping up in certain cities now. So, you know, we have to be vigilant. And I focus on, I think outdoors, the data are pretty good about allowing children to be outdoors and do what they want to do without masking and, and um, you know, being relatively liberal with that. I think indoors, the situation's changing. And personally, I would wear a mask now. If you Jennifer, uh, are, are there any data, are there data on the rates of adverse vaccine reactions in those who previously had COVID or had COVID antibodies versus those who have not had COVID? That's a good question. And, and I think the, and I, I, I haven't found a paper recently on this, but it's the anecdotal impression of many practitioners that if you've recently had COVID within a week or so and you get the vaccine, you have a significant fever, chills, flu-like symptom reaction that lessens over time. And that's why I tend to give it four, after, four weeks after you've had acute COVID, but it has to be done before 90 days because you your immunity wanes. So I think I will look, but I've not seen a paper tracking that um, recently. Uh, but there was an anecdotal thought that if you gave it too early, the flu-like symptoms were a little more robust than you would see if you hadn't had COVID. But I can't show you a paper that documents that. Great. Um, a few more questions, but I, I think we're, it's, it's 9, 9.03. We have to move on to the day. So, John, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for joining. We will schedule uh, another meeting. Uh, I get a sense we may need something in August before we, August. we go all the way through September because of the number of questions people have and things are changing so rapidly, John. So with, yeah. well, we will we, see you in August yeah. then. Um, everyone have a great summer. Very good. Okay. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.